0: Welcome. You're listening to Sermons and Talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through his word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website www.providencechurch.com.au.
1: Our Bible reading today is from the book of Ephesians. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 22. And it's on page 813 in your church Bibles. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of this household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit."
0: Heavenly Father, thank you that in your kindness you sent your Son, Jesus, that we might, through him, have life and hope and forgiveness. Thank you that by your words you shape us and change us, and I pray you'd do the same to us now as we hear you speak from your word. Help me to be faithful to it and speak what is true. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, One of my favourite things that gets people together every year in my friend circles is my year cohort at uni's Christmas party right at the end of the year. And I know Christmas is a while ago, but it feels like it's been enough months that I can speak about it without the pain and without the grief. Because this last year was the first one since we started doing these that some people in the group couldn't make it. Every year we've been doing them, and as we were young students, it was always really easy to organize this gathering in December sometimes to get together, to celebrate the year and what God's been doing. But then things started to happen. People started getting married, and suddenly there's a whole other family contending with their time at that time of the year. People started having children, They started moving away. And last year, we discovered that we had to book four months ahead of time just to make sure that one of the couples would be able to make it because every weekend was busy for them. There's so many things that we like to do that draw us together, but there's often so many things when we do those that can separate us, that can get in the way, that can stop things from happening of us bonding together as people. Many of these things are things we hate, like COVID over the last few years, like people moving away and being physically separated from people, things that we wish would go away. But this morning, I think one of the other things that's important for us to think about as we start thinking about what fellowship as God's people looks like is the things that we actually do, the things that we hate about towards other people that stop us from connecting with others. There's times when we are drawing together, but our own desire to distance from others or our own prejudices and our own hates, they get in the way. The things that make us uncomfortable, they get in the way and they stop us from really connecting with each other as God's people. So this morning, we're looking at a passage that reminds us of everything that God has done in his son Jesus to draw us in in as close a possible way to be united together around him, what he's done to remove every barrier that might separate his people, the ones with faith, as they meet together and fellowship and do church and community together. So we're going to look at what it looks like of how we came into this true fellowship around Jesus and what it actually looks like now for us as his people. And so we're going to do that through looking at a passage in Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 2, 11 to 22. And I'm not sure if you've done Ephesians recently as a church, but in case you haven't or in case you've never looked at it, It's a letter written by Paul to a church and it's really split into two sections. There's chapter one to three that's all about these truths of everything that God has done in Jesus for his people. And then chapters four to six of what it looks like to be together as his people living out all of these truths. And so this morning we're looking at part of that first section of things that God has done. And in that chapter, it's a continuation of the start as well. Uh, Ephesians 1 to 10, um, chapter 2, 1 to 10, is really showing what God has done to bring people from death to life in Jesus, and how in faith, by grace, we're brought together, not by works, but for good works together as his people. Today, this passage is centering around what that looks like for the community of his believers. If one was vertical in our relationship with God, this one's much more horizontal in the way that all of us, if we are of faith, uh, live like together as Hims. I hope that as we see what God has done, that you'll see it as something that's truly miraculous, something that's just inconceivable without his work in us. I hope that we'll be challenged and encouraged together towards thinking about this fellowship we're drawn into, maybe in a new way or maybe in the way that we've always known it should be, that looks like loving Jesus together and each other as his people. So let's get into it. Um, The first point for today from the first two verses in the passage, it's really Paul beginning a reminder again like we had before, of death to life, this time of where these people were before Jesus, of how far away they were from God and his people. Let me read from verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now, Paul, he's writing to a mainly Gentile audience, the people who are not ethnically Jewish, those who weren't God's covenant people across the Old Testament picture, And he's reminding them of where they were before Jesus' work. Where any of us really are today without Jesus. Without him, they were in a terrible situation. That starting part, when I was talking about circumcision, that was a way of saying how they were being mocked by those that were the circumcision, were the Jewish people. Um, Circumcision was part of Jewish culture, instituted by God as an outward sign of being a member of his covenant people. And so these Gentiles were being mocked as pagans outside of God's blessing by being the ones who are the uncircumcision. They're on the outside. They don't have it. They're missing out. They're not God's. And verse 12 then has five ways that this plays out in quick succession. The first one is that they were separate from Christ. And I think particularly that's the way that Gentiles were separate from God's promises that he made of bringing the Christ, his saviour for his people. They were separate from him. Number two, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel or excluded from citizenship in Israel, if you're in the NIV here today. I think that's the national sense of identity and citizenship. They weren't in with the people. They didn't receive all the same blessings as them. They were outside. That's number two. Number three, they were strangers to or foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Think back to the Old Testament. God made promises to Abraham as the first of this new nation he built, of making a great name and a great land and people and blessing. And that picture just keep building and building and building through to the middle of the Old Testament. The Gentiles were separate from all these promises he made to this particular nation. And fourth, they had none of the hope of God's people of his promises of rule and restoration and blessing that he'd made throughout history if they were ones that obeyed him. And then finally, the last one in 12, they were without gods. And it's not that they had no gods. Most of the people here would have had many gods. Sounds even better, but no, they didn't have the true gods. They didn't believe in the God of Scripture who truly rules over the whole world, the one who all of us ought to honor and worship. This is really a picture of being as far away as possible from God and his people as you can imagine. But there's so much more to this as well. There's not just these physical differences or these cultural differences. The way that they all manifested together was creating a environment where it was filled with hate. The Jews despised and hated the Gentiles. They wouldn't want anything to do with them. The Gentiles, they despised and hated the Jews because they treated them that way and because they were different and said they were wrong and all these things. Because of the law, and particularly the cleanliness law that the Jewish people had to do, Jews couldn't even mix with Gentiles without getting dirty and having to clean themselves. This isn't some sort of clash of two cultures that's like, Australia and New Zealand, where, you know, there's a bit of rivalry, but it's all friendly. It's much worse. It's like Israel and Palestine, or maybe even at the moment of Russia and Ukraine, of places very opposed to each other. Paul's reminding them and us still today just how far everyone is from God without the work of Jesus. Now, I, I don't know many of you But if your church is anything like mine, some of you might be in this position, that what it's describing of what it looks like without Jesus is you today. I think this is wanting to point out to you and anyone who doesn't have faith that this is the reality of what it looks like to be without Jesus. Without him, we have no access to God. We have no access to his hope and promises and everything that it means to be part of his people. We'll see more and more of what that looks like to come. But as the passage keeps going, it's going to continue to be a call of, if this is not you, why not? Why not consider him? But as it keeps going, it moves over to verses 13 to 18, and going from reminding them of where they were Paul now goes to remind them of how they've changed and how Christians are all brought together in peace by the blood of Jesus. Verse 13 says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Gentiles in this church, and practically probably all of us here today, Paul is reminding them that the blood of Jesus is what brings them near to Him. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation of being far away from the action and suddenly being brought up close. Uh, One of my friends I used to go to lots of concerts with, and she's really short. And if we got in late, we'd often be stuck on the edge trying to peek over at what was happening but I remember one concert where these really tall guys were all in front of us. They saw her, and they didn't just see her and say, oh, that's a shame. They actually brought her and me right to the front row using all their broad and strength so that we could be in the midst. We could see and hear and feel and even touch who was playing that day. In Christ Jesus, Gentiles who were once far off from God's people And promises are brought as near as they could be together with him and it's all by the blood of Jesus for us today I think especially if we haven't come from a Christian background this can feel a bit archaic or barbaric like some sort of weird magic or ritual but it's not that it's simply what's true for all believers today about what Jesus death has achieved Jesus on the cross died in the place for all those with faith by taking on himself God's anger for the way they've rejected him that they deserve and that by faith they might have new life and forgiveness and hope and joy and peace amongst him and his people. All of us have been without Christ and without God and without hope. But for those with faith, they've now been united to him and his people by his blood. And verses 14 and 18 just show how much that death of Jesus has affected these believers together and what they look like. There's two key words that keep popping up again and again. So as I read this section, just watch out for them um, as I go from verse 14 to 18. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Hopefully you saw, there's lots of ones. There's lots of peace. Gentile believers now have peace with God and his people because together with Jews, they've been weighed one in Jesus. They were once great enemies, but as separate as could be, but now they're united at peace together with him. Now, this isn't the sort of passive peace I think we're used to, bringing back those country examples. If suddenly there was a treaty now between Ukraine and Russia, it's not going to be a sense of everything's fixed. The war might stop, but there's still going to be tension and hatred and hurt for everything that's happened. That's not the kind of peace that Christ achieves. In this sense, it's more about going from enemies to friends, of enjoying life with God together as his one people united by the blood of Jesus. These groups that once mocked each other And once hated each other, they're given peace and friendship and made as close as could be. And it's only possible because they're united together in Jesus and with each other. The law that kept the two groups separate is dealt with at the cross. It's abolished, not that it had no significance anymore, but no longer being constrained to its regulations meant that these places of natural division between the two groups are now gone. But there's two things I think it's really important at this point to mention about this togetherness to make sure we don't get the wrong idea. The first is that Jews and Gentiles are together made one new humanity. You might remember as the Bible talks about these promises of what God's Messiah, King, who comes as Jesus, would do, that there's often this picture of Gentiles being brought in to God's people. God's people are here and they're brought in all one together. But it's less common to have the picture that we have here. And I think Paul's trying to emphasize that it's beyond just people being let in, as if the doors open now, they can come in to us, they're instead made one new people together. They're one new humanity, like new creation. They're given equal status and equal access to the Father through the Spirit, and they're not second class anymore. They all share in the same privilege of being together God's people. Together they're one new humanity, not just people being let in the door. And the second thing is that this is all about believing Jews and Gentiles. Verse 17, this piece it talks about of the gospel being preached to those who are near and those that were far, is isn't saying that all Jews and all Gentiles are now together in Jesus. It's not saying that all ethnically Jewish people had this close standing before God before. It's all about those who've received the grace of the gospel by faith. It's those that are united together. It's only those with faith in Christ's work on the cross and in his resurrection that now enjoy this status, that now enjoy being made together as one new people as close as can be. Now, before we get to the third point now, which is really a shorter point, and this is Paul starting to zoom us into a different picture. We've had these big sweeping picture of far to near but in these last verses, in verses 19 to 22, he shows us this zoomed in one of God's people together being the building blocks of a new temple. Verse 19 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord's. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. They're no longer strangers or foreigners that don't belong in Israel. They're now intimately together in God's family, in his household. They've made fellow citizens with all the people of God in history, all those who have been faithful in trusting in him. They've gone from enemies, not just to friends, but family together as they are united in Jesus. There's lots of temple language in this section, and there's so much I could say, but there's not really time to. But the temple language helps us see a few things in detail about what's happening and the purpose of it they're not just brought together just for the sake of it. These two groups are made one together to be God's representatives and God's light and the place where people see and meet him by his word in the world. Jesus is at the center of it. He's the one that all of these blocks, living blocks, are built off on top of. The teaching of Scripture, of the Old Testament and the New Testament is the foundation of all that we do as Christians and every time we gather together in church. This is where, by His Spirit, God is dwelling in His focused way in the world. We're God's representatives. We're the ones who make Him known. His normal way of showing Himself to the world is through Every day, Christians brought together into church speaking the good news of Jesus. We're built into the family, with Jesus at the centre, with the word as the foundation for all we do, that more people might be brought in through the work and witness of Jesus through his church. So as we get to the end of the passage now, you might be thinking, this is a really good reminder for these Gentiles that are brought in and something to celebrate. But we don't exactly have Gentile due tensions at Providence. At least we don't have it at my church. Uh, what is all irrelevant about this for us today as we think about what true fellowship looks like in Jesus? Well, I don't think the passage is explicitly mentioning church ever. It never says fellowship, But I think it's really clearly telling us about what church is formed around, what we gather around, who we gather around, and the kind of relationship we are called into now as God's people together. And so first, I think they make it clear that as we fellowship together, that true fellowship is centered around Jesus. It's all that he's done that brings us in. It's his blood, it's unity with him. That's our common bond as Christians. That's the thing that we share. I'm a really nerdy guy, you might not have seen it, maybe you have, but I go to lots of board game conventions all the time, and except if someone's been brought in as a partner who really doesn't want to be there, everyone else there loves board games. If I go up to someone, they want to talk about board games, they want to play board games, they want to think about the new games coming, they want to design board games. That's what they're all on about. I get really excited by it too. Is that what we're like as Christians? The one thing that bonds us together as people that come on a Sunday, as people that meet in our groups during the week, is this work that Jesus has done of our shared identity of being made his people together, united in him and with each other. There's so much that people chuck around the fellowship word about these days. They might say we're fellowshipping around this sport or this game or at this restaurant. And those can be really good ways of spending time with Christians. But if you're like me, you've probably gone to a lot of these things and there's never actually really been mention of the gospel. There's never been mention of God's word and how it's coming to bear on our lives. There's never encouragement for the person who's not a believer to actually take a step in following Jesus. It can happen, but so often it doesn't. But if our core of our fellowship is Jesus, then that's what should be true of all the things that we do together. If I'm in a bus stop, I can expect to chat about the weather or the new sports game or the new restaurant in Sunnybank with anyone, and that's fine, but if we're a community that's drawn together by Jesus and united in Him, We have so much more to share that's even greater than that, don't we? It's not that we don't talk about the other things. We do because we care for each other. But it's not what it's all about. Our bond is in Jesus. We're part of the family now. And we ought to delight in him as we share together. If it's that NBA game or the board game or the new restaurant that gets us more excited than the forgiveness and life we've received in him, then I think we need to pause and consider where we're at. We need to think through what it looks like to be united together as his people and sharing in that as we meet together. One of the things my church is trying to think through this year is what it looks like to be people on mission together. And we've been thinking through that if we're not meeting together and speaking about Jesus, then why are we going to be speaking about him to our friends? to our colleagues, to those that are really separate from us if we're not used to it here? Why would we be doing that in isolated places when in the family of believers we're not actually doing it ourselves? This isn't some sort of try harder situation. It's actually a reminder of all that God's done in him to bring us together, that there's so much that we already have to celebrate in him by his work. So don't try to connect by something else when the lasting connection we have is by the bond that Jesus has put us into. We're saved and united in Jesus together, and that means all our fellowship ought to be centred around him. Um, And the second thing is that true fellowship in Jesus transcends human barriers. Again, it's not a weekly struggle for us to have Jews on one end of the church and Gentiles on the other, and they don't want to mix. But I think the Apostle Paul's reminding the church that this is a humongous cultural barrier that existed for millennia that's been broken by people drawn into the gospel. And so all the other things that we put up between each other, how can they stand in the union that God's placed us in? This passage is not saying that suddenly it was emotionally easy for Jews and Gentiles to be together. I think it was quite the opposite. And a lot of the New Testament focuses on what it looks like now for these people that used to hate each other to be in the same room and sharing the same meal. And I think that's similar for us today as we're brought together from really different backgrounds united around Jesus. The gospel is the thing that brings us from far off to close together. And so it means it's going to bring people who were enemies before to be sitting next to each other and needing to figure out what that looks like. And all too often, I think we let these sorts of barriers continue to be an issue. I'm not sure what the issues are for you guys, but at my church, it can be people who sit on the left side of the church, and it's a really big effort during our break for them to walk over to the right side to say hi. It's the people who are older or people who have been there for longer who feel really separate and culturally different to the younger ones. It's people who look really different, who are really committed to wearing formal clothes versus the ones often more like me that are a bit down here. All these things can get in the way, but if it's Jesus that draws us together, if we're already placed in as intimate ways we possibly can as his family of his people drawn together, why are we letting these things stop the way that we share and fellowship together? But it's not just those existing barriers, even though... Not many of us are probably builders or tradies or architects. I reckon we're really skilled at putting up new barriers all the time as well. At my church, that could look like the thing that that person said to me last week that I just can't get over. It It could look like when people don't invite you to something and suddenly that's just a lasting sore on the relationship you have. Think about what that could be for you. Are you an expert at putting up things that divide you amongst the Christians around you? And do you need to consider what it would look like to see this reality as what it is, of us as Christians brought together in Jesus, loving him and each other? And as we wrap up this morning, as we think about more of what that looks like and even chat about it later today, There's always a reminder as we go through passages like this that there are many around us in our community that are not drawn together in this fellowship. For me, there's dear friends that I catch up with with my old work that don't know Jesus. There's people I play games with. Many of them don't know Jesus. There's people in my family, most of my family, that don't know Jesus.